We've been in a series here. I, I guess I have found it both interesting and encouraging. Interesting because, well, we've been looking at um, obscure people in the Bible, people you wouldn't normally study. It's been encouraging as well because I think most of us are obscure and nobodies. And it's encouraging to know that if God could use them, God can use us. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, this time and turn to the epistle of 1 Corinthians in the first chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We've been in a series here, I, I guess I have found it both interesting and encouraging. Interesting because, well, we've been looking at um, obscure people in the Bible, people you wouldn't normally study. It's been encouraging as well because I think most of us are obscure and nobodies, and it's encouraging to know that if God could use them, God can use us. In fact, this is what this passage has to tell us here in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things which are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For I think eight sessions at least, if you will, we've been talking about God's nobodies, and we'll look at a few more today. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we just ask you to please now bless this time in your word. Father, we just pray now that you would help us, help us to listen, help us to take it in, help us to comprehend that which you'd have us to to learn from this, and we'll thank you for it. We pray now and ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. When I was growing up, we always went to the lake during the summer, and out at the uh, lake, uh, we would watch this old game show called Jeopardy, and I guess it's still around. I, I haven't seen it since the days of Art Fleming. Remember him? But with Jeopardy, they have categories, and uh, I think the denomination goes up as they get harder. And so let's pretend that we're playing Jeopardy for just a second, okay? And the category is obscure people found in the Bible. For $100, the owner of a servant by the name of Onesimus, you would say, um, who is Philemon, Art, right? And you would get 100 bucks. All right, let's move up. For $200, name the, the woman who was named the Queen of Persia when her predecessor would not cooperate or submit to her husband. What was her name? Who is Esther? You got to say who first, all right? And then for 300 bucks, name an ancient leader of Mesopotamia mentioned in uh, Genesis chapter 10. Ah. Who is Nimrod, right? And, you know, we could go on and on and on. These are people that are mentioned in the Bible, but they're not like David, and they're not like Moses, and they're not like Elijah. They're not big names. They're not a John the Baptist. They're not a Peter or Paul. 
But they did something. Whether good or bad, they did something, and we've been looking at those who did something for God. Now, we find out that there are very few that stand out. Most are uh, kind of obscure people like this. And the Bible mentions them in verse 26. It says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. It goes on and tells us in so many words that God uses nobodies and obscure people. Verse 31 says that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You see, that way God gets the glory. God gets the exaltation and the honor. And so let's take a look at a few more of these nobodies in the Bible. And the first one is what I call the honorable disciple. If you'll flip forward a few pages to Philippians chapter 2. This guy is, well, he always warms my heart. Whenever I read about him in Philippians chapter 2, there's just something about him. And the Bible tells us that he was worthy of honor for what he did. Now, it wasn't some big thing. It's just recorded in a few verses here. But he's honored, at least in God's mind from it. In Philippians 2 and in verse number 25, we pick up the story of this fellow with a weird name. Verse 25, Paul says, Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick, for indeed he was sick, nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. Now, this scenario takes place in Philippi. Obviously, uh, Paul's writing to a local church there in Philippi. Philippi was a, a chief city, the chief city of Macedonia. It was named after Philip II. Philip II was the father of Alexander the Great. And so here's this church at Philippi, which really was the first European city to get the gospel, being a Grecian city, if you will, and in fact, the chief city of the, the Grecian Empire. A battle was fought finally in 42 B.C., and that's when Rome conquered uh, this city, Philippi, and brought it under its umbrella. But it's the first European city to get the gospel. And it's, a, it's, a, or it's an epistle here, Philippians, that was one of four that was written from a prison cell. Philippians was written by Paul, from a, a Roman jail, so was Philemon, so was Colossians, and so was Ephesians. And Paul was under house arrest at this time. While he was under house arrest, it did not stop his ministry. He continued there in Rome under, under the Caesar's nose to continue to win people to Christ. In fact, hold your place and just flip a page or so, and notice in chapter 4 as he's signing off this little epistle, he says in verse 22, all the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. I smile every time I read that because, well, Paul was winning people to the Lord right under Caesar's nose there in Rome. But now he's writing back to this uh, European city there in Macedonia by the name of Philippi. 
Paul had done some uh, soul winning there as well, too. Remember Lydia, the gal who was the seller of purple? She got saved by the riverside. That was in Philippi. Remember the jailer? Of course, the jailer was the, the fellow who uh, thrust Paul and Silas into the inner prison and, and fastened their feet in the stocks. He ended up getting saved. And he was, he was, I think, a member of that church, no doubt, along with his family. So he's one of those getting this epistle right here. But we find out that amongst those people, there was this uh, Epaphroditus, who was a member of that church at Philippi. And we know that he brought a gift to Paul there in Rome while Paul was under house arrest. It was really missionary support. We do the very same thing today. Notice in verse 25, again, of verse uh, chapter 2, I should say, Paul said, Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion and labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger. We're going to see a little bit later on here that the messenger part of what Epaphroditus did was to bring money there to Paul. In fact, look in chapter 4 here. Let's just peek ahead. In Philippians 4 and in verse number 10, Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you are also careful, but you lacked opportunity. In other words, they apparently wanted to get this mission support to Paul, but just haven't, didn't have the wherewithal to do it. Notice in verse number 18, he says, But I have all in abound. I am full having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. And he's picturing it with the, the altar of incense of the Old Testament and saying that's what this, uh, this mission support is like to me. This money is like to me. Now, Epaphroditus brought the money from Philippi to Rome, but while in Rome, guess what? He got sick. He got really sick, bad sick, almost dying sick. And in verse 25 of chapter 2, Paul says, Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you or send back to you Epaphroditus. Notice he calls him first my brother. I love that. And that term of endurement, of, of, of uh, affection. We call each other brother around here. That might sound w w weird to the world, but actually it's a very, very biblical term there. He also uh, calls him not only his, his brother, but in verse 25, he says, companion in labor. That's really fitting, actually. Uh, we are companions in labor. We are laborers together for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 3.9 says. We are laborers together with God. I was having lunch this past uh, Monday with several other men in the church, and we were discussing things relative to the new training center over there and the, the building even to follow that one. So exciting, just exciting to just to, to sit and to plan and to dream and, and, and see what God could do for us in the future here. We're laborers together. That's an exciting thing to be. But notice also in verse 24, he says, and fellow soldier. Fellow soldier. That's odd. You would think in the spiritual realm we wouldn't get militant, you know. But the Bible does talk about God's people being fellow soldiers. We read in Philemon 1 and verse 2, it says, And to our beloved Alphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier. You know, the Christian life after salvation is uh, it's a battlefield, brother, not a recreation room, as we often say. And so we're in this thing together as fellow soldiers. We read in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 3, no man that warreth 
entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier, a, a, a Christian soldier, a soldier in the spiritual sense. You know, I, I, I was not in the military. Some of you were. But as I talk to folks who are veterans and those who are in the service, they have a reference, uh, a way of referring to those friends that they had in the military. They call them buddies. You ever notice that? Well, I had a buddy in, in Nam, or I had a buddy in the Marines, or I had a buddy. You know, they became buddies because they, well, they had a common denominator. They were uh, put in harm's way quite often. They were in foxholes next to each other. I mean, when, when you labor together like that in, in, in battle, it makes you very, very close. It bonds you. As God's people, we're not only laborers together, but we're fellow soldiers. And, and Paul makes reference to that as he talks to this dear man. We, we are engaged in service together. That's why Ephesians 6 says, put on the whole armor of God. It, it's a battle. And, and if we don't have that armor on, if we don't strap it on daily, we're going to be casualties of war. And sadly, there are a number of casualties. You, you hear about them. You see them around you. And it's important that we maintain that walk with the Lord so that we don't become one of those casualties. But it's also important that we abide with our captain, right? The captain is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, abide in me as, as the vine does the branches. And so we walk with him. Well, Paul finished strong against his spiritual enemies. And, and uh, as we look at Epaphroditus, we see him as well finishing with Paul. Notice also in verse number 25, after he refers to him as a brother, a companion in labor, a fellow soldier, he says, but your messenger, your messenger. There's something about a faithful messenger. In fact, as I was reading that, there was a verse back in the Proverbs that popped into my mind. Maybe you've read it many times as well. The Bible says, as the cold of snow in the time of harvest, so is a faithful messenger to them that send him, for he refresheth the soul of his masters. Your messenger. There's something about a faithful messenger. He also says in verse 25, and he that ministered to my wants. What's he talking about there? Well, the financial end of things. Paul was in need of some financial support, and Epaphroditus brought it to him. He ministered to his wants. Now, notice in verse 26, Paul says, For he, Epaphroditus, longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. Now, wait a minute. Epaphroditus is the sick guy here, but he's worried about the folks back in Philippi, worrying about him being sick. Think about that. That's pretty special. You know, no, normally you get sick, you're full of yourself, right? I mean, you want everybody to know how sick you are and how under the weather you are, and, and you want sympathy. By the way, I've said many times, we're more apt to get sympathy if we don't seek sympathy. Careful about being a sympathy seeker. Uh, we find here that Epaphroditus was not a sympathy seeker. And in fact, uh, people get weary of, of those who are seeking sympathy. And, he, and the, the martyr complex and the poor, poor, you know, the drama queen thing. People roll their eyes at that. But Epaphroditus was not that way. He, he's saying, I don't want them to worry about me. Can you imagine that? He's the guy in his deathbed worried about the people in Philippi who are worried about him. You know, this world is full of opposite types of people. And uh, it, it's sad, but uh, we need to get over ourselves. Verse 26 says, For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. That word heaviness there, it means worn out, 
overpowered with mourning. He was really worried about the people in Philippi, worrying about him, and he wanted to relieve their minds. What a guy. Now, here's a question. As I read this, I thought about this. Why didn't Paul heal this sick guy? All right, we're talking the Apostle Paul. This is his companion, right? And, and did not Paul, as an apostle, have special powers in the first century, if you will, to do that kind of thing? Yeah, he did. In fact, in Acts 19.11, it says, And God wrought or worked special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them. So he had that power. Why didn't he use it? I mean, he almost lost a brother here. He almost lost a, a friend here. Could he not have easily healed this man? Well, apparently he could not. In fact, it's not always God's will to heal somebody. Uh, we need to understand that. There are those who teach it always is. It's not. In fact, Paul couldn't even heal his own infirmity in the flesh. He, meant, he makes reference to that. Maybe an eye issue, I think. And, and Paul prayed three times that he'd be healed himself. And God said, nope, yeah, I just want you to endure that. And so we find out he couldn't heal Epaphroditus. Now, in verse 27, he goes on and says, For indeed he was sick nigh unto death. Wow. Notice the next two words. I've underlined them in my Bible. But God. But God. I love that. I love when something's going this way and, and we go, oh, no. But God. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen that there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. But God, thank God, he comes through for us time and time again. God is good. And uh, when our backs are to the wall, we need to remember him. We need to look to him. The psalmist put it this way, Psalm 107, 19. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saveth them out of their distresses. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. It's too bad we get our backs to the wall before we cry out. But when we do, but God, but God. So, so Paul is saying things are looking bad, but God healed him. Now in verse 29, Paul says, Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such. Notice that word in reputation. That's why I call him the honorable disciple. I mean, he didn't do a whole lot more than just have a burden that people wouldn't worry about him. He was there helping Paul. He was the delivery boy with the, the mission support. But he's the honorable disciple. And it says, hold such in reputation. Verse 30. Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death or close to dying. Not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. Notice that. The work of Christ. For the work of Christ. That just stuck out at me as I read that earlier. The work of Christ is just that. It's work. It's work. You know, I, I, I drove in and out several times today here, and I walked around the building a few times. It was just, it's like a beehive of activity around here. There's, there's people counseling. There's people doing Bible studies. There's people teaching. There's people working on the building. Because the ministry is work. It's work. You know, by the way, we had, uh, had somebody surrender to preach this last week. And uh, I was actually talking to another young man over the weekend, not the same one. But, but God is working in his heart already, and, and I was talking to him about the ministry. And I said, you know, you need to understand something. It's work. What you see during a church service with me standing here doing this, that's not the ministry. 
And you know, some people, oh, that's, you know, that's all he does. You know, there was a, uh, an insurance company, it was down in Minneapolis, it was called the Minister's Life and Casualty Union, and they did a study on pastors of all denominations, found that the average preacher puts in 70 hours a week. I, I read that and I smiled because I, I thought, okay, the average pastor, but, but uh, you know, if you pastor a, a vibrant New Testament church, it's way, way, way more hours than that. And, and the bottom line is, it's work. It's the work of Christ. The Bible makes reference to that. 1 Corinthians 16.10 says, Now if Timotheus come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord as I also do. I remember a fellow in, in Bible college who, who graduated before the rest of us, and he went off and he, he started a church. And I'll never forget one of his support letters that he wrote back. And he, he said, folks, I just got to tell you something. It's one thing. It's W-O-R-K. It is work. It really is. I mean, if we're, if we're doing it right, it is work. But I love it. And uh, if you're involved in it, you love it. What a, what a calling. What a, what a vocation. What an occupation, if you will, to do the work of the Lord. I think of uh, William Borden. And uh, he was the heir of the, the, the Borden fortune as far as the milk thing. And, and uh, he forsook all that. I think it was age 29. And he went to, uh, I think it was China. He caught immediately this oriental disease. He died within months. And you'd say, well, what a waste. No, it really wasn't. He died in the work of the Lord. And he said, before he died, I have no reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. Because he did the work of the Lord. Epaphroditus was honored to do the work of the Lord. It almost killed him. But he was thankful for that privilege. And so he's the honorable disciple. He's a nobody, but we remember him yet in the 21st century. We see this honorable disciple, but we also secondly see this helpful devotee. If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Back in, uh, I think it was 2007, I had the opportunity to take a missions trip with my daughter over to Scotland. And uh, there in Scotland, we went to Edinburgh. Edinburgh's an ancient city. And uh, we were walking through Edinburgh, and, and um, we came across these two graves side by side. Actually, uh, one was the grave of a man, and one was the grave of a, of a dog. And the dog is kind of famous. He's a, a Scottish terrier by the name of, of Greyfriar Bobby. Greyfriar's Bobby uh, was a very, very loyal dog. There's been stories, many stories told about him, how uh, his, his master died in 1858, and he spent the next 14 years keeping a vigil right over the grave of his master. He saw where they buried him, and he stayed right there. And finally, they, 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 the townspeople made a little shelter for him, but he would not leave the grave of his beloved master until one morning they got up and came out and found him sprawled over the grave of his master, finally dead. And they buried him right next to his master. And uh, a touching and a true story at that. But, but what an illustration of loyalty. Well, this next fella, kind of obscure, we know him for being very loyal, and his name is Eliezer of Damascus. I don't think I've ever heard a, a sermon on Eliezer of Damascus, probably hardly heard him mentioned, but here in Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, After these things the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, for I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? Seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir, making a reference to Eliezer of Damascus. And that would often happen. I, I mean, if you brought up a servant like that, you didn't have any heir to your fortune, and uh, this this young person had grown up and now was a man, and, and uh, you loved this person, you would leave him behind everything. The Proverbs mentions that as well. Proverbs 29, 21 says, He that delicately bringeth up, bringeth up his servant from a child shall have him become his son at the length. And so really, Eliezer was in a position to do that. I mean, he would have inherited everything if Abraham had not had any children. Well, we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 14. If we, if we look back one chapter, we find that backslidden Lot the nephew of Abraham, of all places, had gone to seek his fortune in Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what happened here. We find out there were, there were these heathen kings, several of them, that came to town, ransacked Sodom and Gomorrah, and took some of the people and, and uh, the spoil from the city, and Lot and his family were amongst those people. Well, pick it up in Genesis 11 and verse number, or 14 and verse 11. It says, And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their victuals, and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol, and brother of Aner, and these were confederated with Abram. And when Abram heard that, his brother was taken captive, speaking of Lot, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Now, I think Eliezer would have probably been the lead man of this thing. So he's loyal with Abraham. He goes into battle with, with uh, his boss. He just did what he was told. He was not only loyal, he was obedient. He was Abram's right-hand man. By the way, God needs those. I mean, Moses had his Joshua, and and Joshua had his Caleb, and, and David had good men like Nathan, and, uh, and, and love him or hate him, he had Joab. Joab was very loyal to David. Uh, Mark was loyal to Barnabas, and of course Paul had uh, Luke and, and a number like that. These are special people, the Eliezers of this world, who will, uh, who will go with the boss. And by the way, there are not too many who can get close to the boss as these kind of men do, and, and not get critical of the boss. It takes somebody special. You know, David got close to King Saul. Uh, he, was, he was his son-in-law. He, he knew all the family secrets, if you will. And, and yet, when his father-in-law turned on him and wanted to kill him, David said, I'm not going to lay my hand on him. I'm going to be loyal to him. I will not touch God's anointed. You know, we can reap what we sow in a bad way, but we can reap what we sow in a good way. And years later, David's reaping in a good way. He had men who were, who were loyal to him. Uh, and, and in fact, when uh, Absalom rose up against David, a lot of Israel went with, with Absalom, but not his mighty men. They were loyal to David. They'd seen the mistakes he had made. They knew his flaws, but they stayed loyal to him. I think one of the most touching stories is later on in the Bible when, when David's an old guy at this point, and his days of killing giants are over, and he's almost killed by a giant. Remember that story? And David's men step in and they help him and they say, Boss, you're not going to battle anymore. You're worth 10,000 of us. You, you stay behind. They loved him, though they knew his flaws. They were aware of his mistakes. 
You know, it takes special men like Eliezer to get close to the boss. I, by the way, there, there are men all over this room that I, I've known for years and years and years who have been such a blessing to me in spite of the mistakes you've seen me make. And uh, I believe there's a special reward for that. Everybody has their flaws. Nobody bats a thousand. But, but I thank God for friends, true blue friends all over this church who have been with me a long time, and I've been with you a long time. And uh, by God's grace, we'll finish this thing together. Amen. And you'll sit high in heaven. But here's Eliezer. Here's Eliezer. He's this helpful devotee, I call him. Now look in chapter 24, if you would. In Genesis chapter 24, it's time to find a wife for the son who has been born to Abraham. That son is named Isaac. So now Eliezer is not going to inherit everything. You would think he'd be the last guy to want to be a blessing to this Isaac. In fact, you think he would be cynical and, and begrudge Isaac for taking the fortune away from him. But he's not. Abraham says, I want you to go find a wife for my son. And Eliezer goes and he, he finds one. Well, God finds him one. It's so heartwarming as you read it here. In verse number 26 of Genesis 24, it says, And the man, that's Eliezer, bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth, I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And he found a wife for Isaac by the name of Rebekah. You know the story there. But what I like about this is the spirit of this guy. Uh, I mean, he's got such a sweet spirit. Even though this meant he would never inherit his master's fortune. You know, normally we begrudge people or we can't be happy for people like that. But it's, it's so refreshing to find somebody who is thrilled that God had blessed his journey there and his master. He's devoted. He is loyal. He is not offended. Uh, he is true blue unto the end. And it really uh, is a good time for us to look within and say, do we have that kind of attitude? Because you can be an obscure person like Eliezer. You can be a nobody like him. But just have a good attitude no matter what. Be loyal. Be obedient. And sit high in heaven as a result. So we see, first of all, this honorable disciple. We see, secondly, this helpful devotee. And finally, we see this harboring deputy. I'd like you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 18, if you would. This harboring deputy. His name, well, if it was Jeopardy, I don't know if any of us would get it. His name is Obadiah. And he's not the one you're thinking about. He's not the one who wrote the minor prophet's book of the Old Testament. Obadiah is uh, actually somebody who served King Ahab, of all people. You know, there's a missionary that uh, was through here back in April. And, and in fact, you know Brother Kuzel. He's, he's made two visits to the uh, King of Swaziland over there. And, and more recently in New York City, got another audience with him. Have you ever had a chance to, uh, to, to rub elbows with somebody important like that? By the way, I shook hands with a U.S. Senator last weekend. Uh, yep, yep, you're looking at somebody. Do you, you realize who you're, t who you're listening to right now, okay? But, but there are a lot of, of, of uh, important people. They have their entourage. They have their assistance. Well, Ahab was a king. And Ahab had this assistant by the name of Obadiah. What's weird about this relationship is, is Israel was the pits at that time because Ahab and Jezebel were the pits. And yet there's a godly man by the name of Obadiah serving the king. We pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 18. We won't be able to read the whole thing to save time. But it says 
And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Now, the picture is this. It had been over three years since there had been any rain, and there wasn't any grass for the animals, and times were tough so much so that the king himself is out there looking for grass for the animals, and he sends his right-hand man, Obadiah, to also look for some grass. Well, Obadiah is out there looking for grass. Guess who he runs into? Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah, the very man that the king hated and for years had been trying to kill and had looked everywhere for, and now Obadiah stumbles across him. And Elijah said, uh, go, uh, go tell the king you found me. And, and he goes, this will be the death of me. Because when I leave, some, some whirlwind will pick you up and we come back, you won't be there. And the king will behead me for this. And he'll say, why didn't you kill him when you had the chance or bring him in? And Elijah said, no, don't, don't worry, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come in. And, and the man, Obadiah, is pleading for his life, saying, look, don't you realize that when Jezebel was knocking off all these prophets, I was hiding them in caves and bringing them bread and water? And so that was Obadiah. Obadiah stuck his neck out. In fact, uh, look in chapter 18. Let's pick it up in about verse 13. Was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now thou sayest, go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he shall slay me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. Now, that's not really the story of what took place after that. The story is this. Obadiah was a nobody, but he stuck his neck out for God. I mean, if, if he would have been caught housing those prophets, do you know what Jezebel would have done to him? I mean, death would have been too good. There would have been some torture before then. And so here he is hiding these people. Kind of reminds me of, of stories from World War II with uh, Oscar Schindler and, and uh, Anne Frank, the, the people who, who hid her family and such. These were folks who, at the risk of their own life, were hiding people. They knew Hitler was a madman, but they were willing to stick their necks out. And uh, so here's Obadiah. After Jezebel had ordered everybody uh, to kill these, these prophets, Obadiah, at the risk of his own personal safety, was willing to do this. Such civil disobedience. By the way, it, it begs the question, is it ever right to defy authority? That's a good question, isn't it? And uh, the answer is yes, if that authority is defying God. Uh, we find uh, Pharaoh telling the midwives of Israel to put the Jewish baby boys to death. And they didn't do it. And God said, good job. And he blessed them for that. Uh, we find other stories. You know, there, there was a time when, um, when Samuel was sent to replace King Saul with a new king by anointed David, anointing David. And, 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 and Samuel goes, if I do that, Saul hears about it, I'm dead. And God said, well, just, uh, just say you're going there to do a sacrifice. You know, sometimes, by the way, God's very practical. And I'm not advocating, you know, everybody having a streak of larceny. But the truth of the matter is, we ought to obey the highest authority. That's what Peter said in Acts 5.29, when they told him to quit preaching. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And so when, when the laws come along and say, you know, uh, we think it's okay to uh, murder an unborn baby, and, and we don't think it's right for you to preach this, and, and you can't read your Bible in a public school and all this stuff, there's something called 
I think, sanctified defiance, if you will. Because we are always to obey the highest authority. That authority is God. And uh, for years, the Couriers for Christ and folks like that were taking Bibles in, smuggling Bibles into communist countries and such, just to get the Word of God out. So, on one hand, it says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to kings or governors or such. But on the other hand, we are also always to obey the highest authority. And, and the highest authority is God. And the greatest mandate comes from God. And the Lord said before he left, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so that's what we're to do ultimately. Obadiah was, he was wise, he was discreet about it, but he risked his life. It's hard to stand in the days in which we're living. It, it really is. I, I see a very nasty undercurrent in our society. I'm sure you see the same thing. It's only going to get harder. And so we can take heart that uh, with God's help, Obadiah did the right thing. With God's help, we can do the right thing. We can stand for truth, even as nobodies. You know, as I study the Bible, I, I find that there is a crown given when it's all said and done for faithfulness. Just faithfulness. There's no crown in the Bible rewarded for being good-looking or having money or being famous or popular or rich or any of those things. But there is a crown just for faithfulness. I believe Epaphroditus got it. Uh, Eliezer got it. Uh, Obadiah got it. These, these are nobodies. But they're sitting high in heaven. And they're honored by the Lord. They're rewarded. They lived centuries ago, obviously. It's our turn now in the 21st century. It's our turn. May God use us. May God use our sincerity like he did theirs, our zeal, our work, our loyalty, our obedience, our devotion, and our willingness to stand in, in hard times as nobody's for God. By his grace, may he help us to do so. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.